Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the podcast Live Theory, Applications for Writing and Rhetoric. I'm Ryan Liak, co-chair with my colleague Meredith Cruz of the Professional Development Committee in the Dornsife Writing Program at USC, which hosts this podcast. We're here with Susan Jarrett, Professor Emerita of Comparative Literature at UC Irvine, to share with us her rich experience as an editor of Rhetoric Society Quarterly, the official journal of the Rhetoric Society of America, um, and her experience, moreover, as a writer um, and a scholar, which will be of great value to those of us working in rhetoric, composition, and related fields, whether in returning to unfinished projects or in taking up new ones. Her talk will be followed by a substantive 40-minute discussion, uh, which will be broadcasted afterwards on the Live Theory website and on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and the like. And we have changed the format a little bit, given the nature of having more of a faculty audience. So we thought we would make it more of a discussion between us, oriented more on the writerly side of how we approach um, often very difficult, complicated academic projects. So um, with that, I figure we can start off with that question I was mentioning, Susan, how do you, with something like rereading the sophist or your more recent book, The Chain of Gold, how do you approach such a, a complex project or maybe you know some of the strategies that you have for dealing with such a large volume of historical work without getting completely lost or maybe you do get completely lost and that's and that's productive well uh for rereading this office thank you very much ryan it's really nice to be here and uh welcome to ellen Quandall and daniel gross and i hope we can make this more like a conversation than um presentation but um for, for that uh, rereading this office book, it came out of my dissertation. So now a project that's been worked on over a number of years and um, that provides the opportunity to um, work on the history and deepen the scholarship and present and get feedback and over, over a period of time. But you're right, it's a really, really vast bibliography for um, that, that area and um, I can't pretend to have mastered it, but um, I just have to rely on <clears throat> not only my own work, but um, the reviewers and the responses from, from other people. Um, so also, um, I'm looking now too at these four qualities for um, publication in RSQ, and they're giving me a little bit of a framework to work from. Uh, so the idea of entering an ongoing conversation, um, I think that was helpful. Um, there were a couple of people interested in the sophists um, at the time that I was working. And so going to, com uh, to conferences with them and reading their work and um, inter uh, interacting with them was helpful you know, and inspiring for the project. Um, the, um, the moving from the dissertation to the book was interesting for me because my dissertation actually focused on Victorian um, nonfiction writing. Um, the sophist part of it was the introductory framework. And I was really 
taken with the whole idea of the epistemological idea of, of creating knowledge through through the writing, through writing, which is is very um, very well accepted and understood now. I, I think it was a little less so then, but um, so I had presented a couple of papers on the sophists. You know, here you are as a new tenure track professor, and you you need to write a book, and is the dissertation going to be the book? And it was it was a pretty massive project. Not only the ancient Greek sources, but then the Victorian period is also incredibly rich and complicated. And each of the three authors that I was working with, um, Charles Darwin, um, John Henry Newman, and Walter Pater, you know, in three different disciplines, it, it was it was just enormous. So um, I was pretty quickly coming to the conclusion that I really couldn't write that dissertation as a book and uh, was but I did publish a couple of articles about, about the sophists and uh, just to kind of get started. And I had a wonderful experience. I was on sabbatical and I was, so that was really the time, you know, that I had to make it come together, make it work um, as an untenured faculty member. And I happened to be at a, a conference or some kind of meeting and ran into one of my classmates from the University of Texas where I graduated and I explained my dilemma to him, you know, how do I master all this stuff? Where do I go with this? And he just said, you know, I, I think your stuff on this office is pretty interesting. Why don't you just go with that? And um, I thought, okay, great idea. <laughs> so so, so uh, that was helpful. And so it, it was a, a book that had um, an introductory, you know, grounding concept of um, a historiographical, you know, revision. Um, by putting the sophist forward. And then the other parts of it were um, separate, you know, essays. Uh, one of, maybe one of which I had published already. Um, so the pieces, having it divided up into pieces made it helpful and work. And, um, and then the idea of exigence um, I think led to the, to the last chapter, uh, you know, who, who needs this work and, uh, what, what do I want to contribute? So I wanted to contribute to the history of rhetoric and to how we write histories of rhetoric. Um, but I also, as a teacher of writing, uh, I thought that pedagogy would be an interesting thing to address. I never, I didn't in that book and haven't since written anything that says, you know, what is, what could be considered a sophistic pedagogy um, for now. And I think that's still an interesting question. Um, who knows, maybe somebody will answer it one of these days. <laughs> but that's what led me to, um, to the last chapter, which took up that um, conflict between the cognitive um, writing practices uh, advocated by Linda Flower and, and her group over against the more socially conscious pedagogies of people like Pat Bazell. And so I kind of wove the sophists into that. Um, so um, that, that's a little bit about how that book came to be and you know, just impelled by the pressure to produce a book for tenure. So 
that really puts a puts an edge on things. <laughs> um, and uh, it was probably written too fast and could have been a much better book, but um, it got published and some people read it and thought it was useful. So um, I guess that's another thing to maybe think about in academic writing is um, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the urge to, to kind of perfectionism to, to be able to say the most definitive thing and say it in the very best way possible and refute all the critics and I think it's good to think that, you know, that's really not possible. And um, so you you kind of do something that, it, that is responsible and has been vetted, as I've been saying, um, and makes the contribution, but probably leaves some questions open and, and or has maybe some conclusions are rather tentative and waiting for other people, you know, to contribute, so. So those are some thoughts maybe for us to start with. Um. Excellent, yeah, I recently tried to, because I certainly, like many or maybe most academics, struggle with perfectionism, you know, um, in my writing. And so I'm doing an article right now, actually, and you've read some of it, some of the foundation for it, uh, which was in the second chapter of my dissertation, uh, which is, is grounded in the sophists in the first sophists. And um, it, you know, I did go down the rabbit hole of the Greek <laughs> etymology and culture and et cetera, kind of over the last summer. And especially looking into, you know, CCW Taylor's work on the atomists and trying to find these, uh, or not find, but, but uh, maybe find and also create these, forge these connections between rhetoric um, sophistic rhetoric and atomism and, you know, carrying that forward into quantum mechanics, right, and, and contemporary rhetoric. And it's, I got so, yeah, lost in the, in understanding the Greek concepts um, and words and what the sophists meant by them, what the atomists meant by them and the urge to be, to get everything absolutely perfect that I think I, lost sight of the more reasonable goal, like you mentioned, that is now my, I, you know, I try to remind myself of this all the time when I'm writing is to basically do enough in this article or, or the book project to make a contribution. Um, and that's kind of my baseline goal, right, is, is, to, is to have it be enough to, to be a contribution. Um, and then from there, I can, like you said, if the project didn't quite live up to my expectations, I can you know, do another article or a follow-up or, or something to explore those questions that came up that I didn't get a chance to answer um, and the like. I don't know, what do you think, Daniel or Ellen, do you have any, any resonances here with your own projects or your own work? I have a, a question about the RSQ editing, so I'll hold on to that for a moment. I mean, Ellen and I have written together, um, so there might be some things we could think about as part of our, our process, um, writing on the Byzantine historian, Anna Komnena. Um, and we got, did we get started on that project in our Greek translation group, Ellen? We did, yeah. Yeah. 
And so I guess with, with that project, you know, who, who is, there's so little um, scholarship on Byzantine rhetoric and on this person. So that was a really big impetus, I think, for us to do this. Um, what, what do you remember about our, our writing process? <laughs> the good parts. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, I remember at some point in our, our Greek study group, um, I don't even know quite how we discovered Anna, but our group decided to translate some passages together. And um, she seemed both so familiar to people working in ancient rhetoric and so unlike anything we'd ever seen before that it just seemed to sort of call out for some work. But, you know, as I think back, like on the very first conference paper that we did together, we really said, this is a beginning. We, we're here to introduce this person, to begin to think about her rhetorically, but it's, it's just that, it's a rhetorical introduction. Um, so, so there was still a lot of room to do more work, uh, which seems so important to me. And Ryan, what you just said about knowing that there are some questions unanswered, that's so great. I mean, I love an article that ends by sort of opening out on to hear more things to think about, because that's so rich for readers. Right. I think um, you started with the question about a lot of material, and that's certainly the case for you know the Byzantine era, and this was all new to us. Um, um, and so then there's the the matter of selection, and especially when the object that we were writing about, 15 book histories, just huge, and we wanted to write an article, um, we really had to figure out what our points of emphasis were going to be. Um, so that um, that required some some conversation, thought, and conversation, and. Um, and, and leaving leaving things behind so so much to um, it couldn't be included um, so yeah. is it maybe a, a method of kind of developing your own to, you know to go back to Kenneth Burke your own terministic screens right your own frameworks to kind of cut through the mass of all these volumes of history to find only what's relevant which is just um, I think in the Greek history you know with the sophists and uh, mm -hmm in particular, th that's been my central kind of struggle, right? Is, is finding ways to cut through the, the kind of volumes of material um, to focus on what will be relevant and useful without leaving anything out that, that, could, that could fundamentally you know, alter whatever it is I'm trying to contribute or argue or, you know. Yeah, you, you recently described a, a recent writing project to me, and I don't know if you want to talk about it in specific, but it was um, also a, a project which required dealing with a great deal of historical material. Mm -hmm. And somehow you found a path to writing, I think, a probably chapter-sized 
a piece that was invited and you had a deadline. So again, it you needed to get there. And I remember you talking about a process of, it just kind of seemed like climbing a hill, climbing a hill, climbing a hill, <laughs> and then somehow a framework, I think, mm -hmm. started to emerge. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, I was actually thinking about that piece. Um, it was, yeah, I really struggled over it for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, the um, a framework was given, it was invited and there was there were certain parameters for it. So that's helpful as opposed to, you know, I need to, I want to publish an article about X, you know, how do I go yeah. about it? Um, but yeah, I think I needed, uh, so it's, it's an encyclopedia uh, article on ancient rhetoric. So, you know, just enormous topic. And um, what helped me with that is the audience. So the, the resource is called the Oxford Research Encyclopedia for Communication. It's an online resource. And they don't have many historical articles at all. So I need you to think about readers. It's designed for say upper division undergrads or grad students in communication studies um, who want to know more about a topic. And then also, of, of course, faculty members or you know any educated person who doesn't, doesn't know anything about this topic. So, so I know I couldn't assume too much about, about people's knowledge of, of ancient history. So I needed a lot of context. Um, but the, I, I don't know, the downside of, of writing the upside and the downside. The upside is I've spent, you know, quite a number of years, decades on this topic. So I have I have a lot to say about it. But the downside is I'm, I'm kind of weary of the the narrative. <laughs> and so I needed some way to make it fresh. And um what I did was uh use the idea that the just the um, description given to me and the students that I imagine reading it are going to be kind of on a, um, say, uh, they're going to be in a synchronous space. They're going to be thinking of concepts, definitions, and not not historically. So I was just thinking of that, you know, synchronous, uh, synchronic and diachronic, you know, X. And so I had the diachronic is the story that's going on forward, on and on and on. Um, but then I decided to break it up with uh, concepts or issues uh, that I thought could be useful for um, people who are not historians of rhetoric and maybe use some of those to try to link to things that would be interesting to communications people. So, um, so I started out with Homer and, uh, and then, yeah, I think maybe yeah, and then, then at a certain point, I made a, um, an offset, a sort of sidebar is the way I was thinking of them, about um, orality and literacy. And then, you know, I'm going along and talking about the sophist and then get to Plato, and then I do a sidebar on women and gender in the history of rhetoric. Um, so by then, I've talked about Gorgias' um, encomium of Helen. I've talked about Sappho. And we have, you know, the uh, Aspasia and uh, Diatima from the Plato works. And so I do a blurb on that because I wanted, and the instructions 
advised, you know, to include questions about diversity and in, in your piece. And, you know, as a feminist, I definitely want to talk about women and gender. So um, I was thinking about this, this goes in a different direction, but on the Anna piece, um, how do we choose from all that material? And so one of the things that um, was interesting to us is that Anna is a woman. It's an extremely striking circumstance. And so we brought a feminist perspective. So that was one of our terministic um, screens. And then another thing that this is a more conventional writing tactic, but um, we didn't like the way other critics wrote about Anna's work and especially this angle on her that she was a whiner. You know, she, she uh, was a crybaby. She was always bursting into tears. And we thought we didn't like, we didn't agree with that. And we thought that there would be a different way to go at that. So another very conventional, but very important spur to the writing process is there's, there's a narrative out there that is, you, you don't think works well and you want to correct it. And so that gives you the angle in or a terministic screen, I guess, could be related to that. So. Connecting to uh, what a couple of you have said, I'm wondering, Susan, about your reading and research practices and when that turns to writing and what your strategies are for knowing when to make that turn, because that's something that is challenging to all of us, um, maybe especially to less experienced writers, uh, graduate students thinking, I need to master the following domains before I get going. And that can be debilitating, right? Um, so just to give you all a couple of examples, I was shocked to hear from uh, a colleague at the University of Pittsburgh, David Marshall, that he had read all, I think it's now 120 some odd volumes of Heidegger's Gesamtausgabe before he felt um, authorized to, to write and publish a chapter of a book that addressed Heidegger. Um, shocked because I've never met anyone who claims to have read all 120 some odd volumes. Um, so, you know, I, if I could wave a magic wand and read all of everything, I would, but I can't. So I have a different strategy. Um, there, are some, there are some times and places where a corpus is manageable enough um, and diverse enough so you want to and have to read everything. Um, sometimes there are languages that might get in the way. That's, uh, that's another sort of reading and research question. Um, but generally say when I talk to graduate students and my own practice um, is a kind of art of, of feeling when my um, questions and curiosity have started to become redundant, which is to say, when I kind of know where things are going and I'm not getting surprised anymore by the material I'm immersed in, right? So as long as I'm shocked or surprised or discovering something I wouldn't have expected, I feel like my research is not ready to make that turn to writing because there could be you know, th this monster or this lovely fountain right around the corner that I never saw. And I I'd, I'd eternally feel bad about that, especially when someone pointed it out after publication. Um, it, but I get to a point where like, huh, 
it's been a day or two now since I've seen or thought about anything new. That's the first sign that I might be reaching the end of my research. Let me give it a couple more days. Let me poke around here and there. Okay, I'm not certain that I have almost everything, um, but I think it's a pretty good bet. Like I'm, this is a, a better bet now that I've thought about or encountered at least the themes, the, the topics, the, um, the methods, the content, the reference points, I have a feeling for it. And when I have that feeling for it, that's when I'm ready to go. So I'm curious, Susan, like what's your strategy for knowing when to turn and what are, what are some of um, the things that you notice about when you tend to make that turn? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have two different experiences that come to mind. One is when I was trying to decide on a dissertation topic, I was taking ancient rhetoric with James Canaby and um, I, I, we were standing in the library, I remember, and uh, Perry Castaneda Library at UT. And I said, I'm kind of interested in the sophists. What do you think about that? And he said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think there could be more done on the sophists. And he said, and you could read everything they wrote in an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> but to be more serious about it, um, the scholarship on the sophists, um, I mean, it's just, it's manageable. Uh, let's say in contrast to Plato, um, there, and the way I knew it is not as, maybe this is another version of what you're saying. It's when you read article after article and you see the same scholarly sources being quoted again and again and again, and you say, okay, I've got that one. I've got that one. I've got that one, you know? So, um, so that's, that's a sign of getting the research or the, the terrain kind of known. Um, I'm not sure for me, that means I'm ready to write yet, but, <laughs> but it is a, a point. And, uh, Another example, I think I was a bigger topic for the Chain of Gold book, um, how, yeah, well, the Roman Empire. I mean, I didn't study Rome um, very much. I studied Greece. And uh, and so I, I wanted to write about Greek rhetors in the Roman Empire. And then I just realized, wow, I just, there's so much I need to learn about this. And so, you know, I got, um, I got some key um, overview books and, you know, some of them just incredibly helpful. And, um, and then I need to, I needed to know how was empire defined for the Roman period. And that was really tricky for me because I was working with, um, and this goes to um, method, um, methodology analysis it's also a theoretical question too but you know we're accustomed to we're familiar with uh, post-colonial theory so thinking of um, colonialism from the perspective of the European colonizers of the you know 15th 16th 17th centuries um, and the ideas about um, colonization and subjects and power um and rhetoric you know speak, speaking and writing from the position of the colonized or the colonizer all that 
you know, is in a certain temporality. And I was, I started out by trying to use that to work on my project. And I came to a realization that I didn't believe that that those were effective presumptions um, to bring to Roman, um, the, the Roman empire. And so uh, that was really, that was really a helpful um, point, but that took me a really long time to get to. And oddly, the mode of analysis that I, that I stumbled upon that I used in my book came from a single article um, by a guy named Brett Benjamin, who is uh, a literary scholar at SUNY Albany. Um, he does Marxism, economies, um, global studies, a wide range of things, but this is a book that uh, was in a collection on global rhetorics and uh, by Rebecca Dingo and edited by Dingo and Blake Scott. And it was an analysis of a, a film made by uh, a guy from Mali, the African country, country of Mali. And um, it's a fascinating article um, that you know, the material was not relevant to my study, but the way he set up empire and how to do an analysis um, based on certain presumptions about empire was incredibly helpful. And it's what, I, it's what really just kind of answered that problem for me. So I guess I would maybe turn that into a suggestion or an observation that you can find helpful material in all sorts of places that might not even be where you were expecting to look. So, so I don't know when you know how to start writing. I guess um, that <laughs> I have two extreme examples. One, I had to get tenure. Uh, the second one, it took me 20 years to finish Chain of Gold. So um, I didn't, didn't, I guess the pressures of, you know, promotion or whatever weren't strong enough to, to motivate me or, or there were just so many difficulties in the project that it, it really, really took me a very long time um, to, to get that finished. Yeah, I really like those examples. I, as, as a graduate student, that was a huge motivation, right, to get the dissertation um, done. As they always say, you know, the, the best dissertation is a done dissertation. And so it, it uh, you know, I, I ended up with two, you know, 220 text citations and my dissertation was like 360 pages. And, I've, and even then I felt like, you know, I, I took two years on it and I felt like I barely scratched the surface and that was 2018. So I, I um, had taken two years to write that. And since then, you know, it's been almost um, four years now uh, I mean, I had one article published. It was a version of the fifth chapter in uh, Composition Forum. And I basically spent this entire time otherwise, you know, doing more research for one of the chapters. Um, and I think it's, yeah, the, the lack of um, having, yeah, certain kinds of high profile <laughs> deadlines certainly helps. But I really like what you said about um, Daniel, and then Susan, your, your kind of comment on it was, yeah, feeling like when you're not being surprised anymore, when you're not, um, when you're seeing a lot of the same sources, and I felt like this with the sophists, uh, that, that, was, that was funny, Susan, because 
it was so great to get like the one volume of the, all the fragments of the sophists. Like, oh, that's, you know, <laughs> all, the, all the primary sources that, uh, that you need. And, um, you know, for, for the first sophists anyway. But then, uh, yeah, just sorting through, that was easy enough. But then sorting through the certain concepts and doing that in conjunction with the atomists who were a lot more tricky uh, I don't know if you've read Mi Kyung Lee's work on Protagoras. No. Um, she had a book called Epistemology After Protagoras, uh, like responses, the subtitle is Responses to Rel Relativism in Plato and Aristotle, I think. And just, uh, I mean, breathtaking scholarship. I mean, just the amount of material she's indexing there. And it just enough to get completely lost in for, yeah, maybe 20 years, like your chain of gold book. But, uh, you know, like you said, I started to, to, to see a lot of the same sources and I wasn't, there were some new nuggets here and there that were filling in some blanks, but nothing really surprising. And that's actually, I'm glad you phrased it that way, Daniel, because I really hadn't thought about it like that, that at that point I wasn't being surprised and that's when I kind of had an instinct that, you know, now I think I can, I can tackle this thing. I can get an angle and, and contribute to it. Did you feel like that with Heidegger, your book, your recent book, Being Moved? Um, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of work on Heidegger before, but did that take you down some, some rabbit holes as well that you had to sort of sort through, right? More volumes of material? Right. So the, the follow-up to that story about not being a completist like uh, David Marshall, I have read probably of the 125 volumes, um, maybe 25 of them carefully. And I've looked at another 20 or so. Um, and they're the pat it's pattern recognition, right? So you have a responsibility to look at the breadth, to look at the turns, to look at the different types of documents and materials in a corpus. Um, but the pattern recognition then can settle in at a certain point, which is to say, I'll still be surprised by someone who um, asks a question about one of the 50 to 75% of the complete works that I don't know well, or I've glanced at, or I haven't read at all, but I, I'll, I need to know what's being referenced, right? I, I know, I, like I have the map of the 125 in my head because I have a scholarly responsibility having written about it and, and taught it. So the surprise will be, oh, interesting that you've looked at like this really sort of tertiary reference point um, on this topic, um, and I can situate what someone might be asking and have an idea about what it means and where it's coming from and how to answer it, maybe not based on the specific reference into a specific volume, but on a neighboring one. Because um, just like it, you know, 125 volumes in this case, I, I was thinking about this because of, I guess Comana's history is what, 15 volumes you mentioned, right? Um, the, uh, the patterns then have these neighboring elements and you can address a question by way of uh, what you know that's quite close. 
Um, so the, did you read all of the Kamena? Did we read the whole work? Yeah. Yes. It's a 15, so like 15 volumes this, this wide. Uh, no, it's like this. Okay. So they're, they're all 15 fit in, in a couple of inches of text on your shelf. Yeah. It's, it's all in one, one book. Like okay. That sounds doable. <laughs> it's, it's doable. Yeah. But, no, um, it, there are only really three English translations. So that posed a lot of questions as well. Um, yeah. An analogous example, I, uh, I thought about David Hume's um, History of England, which is also many, many, many volumes and was once the most read of his works by far. What he was famous for in his time was mostly his History of England which mm -hmm. nobody reads anymore. Um, and David, if they- David Hume? David Hume. Oh, 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 okay. Um, and that people might know that he wrote it and peek at it to see sort of what's going on with his histories. But why would you read all 15 that said, there is a kind of reckoning with one's own finitude. When, when writing on Hume, it's like, well, that's that's a whole world I know about, but I I did not explore it, and uh, I will leave it up to um, good luck and hopefully good judgment that that wasn't a big mistake, right? And and sometimes you make mistakes. Yeah, this conversation is making me think about um, decisions, making decisions, um, and the decision I made about my dissertation to just lop off, you know, a whole part of it and. Uh, that that might be something you could think about, Ryan. Is you know maybe maybe just take a smaller chunk of this thing, um, and try to work work that out first. See how that goes. Um, Absolutely, and that's I, I think that is uh, yeah a, a strategy of in a sense, cutting down to what is absolutely essential. I mean, I, I originally started this particular article that I was writing with even, you know, even from the beginning, I knew it was way too much to approach. And I, and I wanted to look at like the atomists and the sophists generally. And I've, you know, narrowed that down to Protagoras and Democritus. <laughs> and from, from that, I've gone down to just a couple conversations uh, or, or, or parts of Plato's dialogues um, in Protagoras and Theotetus, and then uh, Democritus. Luckily, doesn't didn't not a lot of his work survives. That's but the scholarship on it is is um, enormous. So, but I feel like I I can make a contribution there, and I can move forward to relevant similar conversations, right? And in, in quantum mechanics. Um, that sound a lot like those earlier conversations but are different in important ways. I mean, that's enough to, to, to show that there's a, there's a contribution here that I can then pursue later. So I think, yeah, your, your strategy of, of um, ha having some kind of angle that can slice down, even if it feels a little redundant, like you said, you just kind of lopped off, you know, a part of your dissertation, uh, you know, that, Sometimes it feels like those 
almost arbitrary decisions that are based on maybe your interest or like you said, your interest in the sophists and then just the fact that it's a practical decision um, can be quite uh, productive, right? As, as it has been for the whole book project. Yeah, another thing, um, your descriptions of your project make me think about and the, and the book um, that you cited, um, working in that material in the sophists and the you know Greek um, Greek writings. Um, as we all know, these our, our our materials are taken up from different disciplinary angles, and so I would come up against people who were writing about the sophists from a philosophical disciplinary um, location. And sometimes their questions and treatments were interesting and useful to me, and sometimes they weren't. So um, I gave myself permission to um, not, you know, spend too much time or take into account people who, um, scholars who, whose questions were more philosophical than rhetorical, from my perspective. Um, that I'm remembering a, a section of a, the book, um, Kerford, I believe, is the author, one of the main classicists who worked on the sophists earlier on. And he had a really, just spent a really, really long time talking about um, subject, um, subjective, whether, what was the, definition of the subjective and do we consider the sophists claims about knowledge to be subjective claims and if so what is you know what's at stake there and i appreciated his analysis and his work but um for my purposes that did, didn't that question didn't really didn't really matter as much um to me so so that was kind of helpful to say, okay, I don't have to go this exactly down this path, you know, with each of these um, sources that I'm using. Um, that's where the, you know, the, the footnote can be kind of helpful, you know, for more on the question of the subjective nature of sophistic knowledge, see Kerford pages, you know, 15 to 150. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah. See the 15 volumes of somebody. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. I have this exact same problem, um, right. With, with more philosophical angles and I, you know, even the, the Mikyung Lee, she, you know, she, several chapters on like whether Protagoras was an infallibilist or a fallibilist about knowledge and all this stuff. That's you, the kind of thing I'm talking about. <laughs> does that really matter to you? And if it does, then it's great that you've got that source. And if not, Excellent. Well, if uh, Daniel, you said I had a question about, we've got just another 10 minutes about RSQ, right? The editing. Yeah, Susan, I would love to hear you talk a little bit now in retrospect about your time editing RSQ with a question I have in mind as someone who has um, wondered about but never edited a journal of that sort, which really is a kind of major river that's already running when you step into it or cast your boat off from the shore, to what extent you feel like you're just tending and navigating the torrent of water um, 
and to what extent you can actually you know shift it in some direction or another how active can you be about that is it or is it more a matter of taking opportunities of what lands on your desk and and moving it um, in a more sort of spontaneous way so what was your experience of that and if you feel like you were either trying or wound up nudging the the journal in some direction or another, um, what was that direction or those directions? Oh, that's a good question, Daniel. Um, it is, yeah, stepping into the river, that's a pretty good metaphor. That it's that the handoff is extremely tricky. And uh the it's it's really best if the existing editor can really um finish um, everything and this, so there's a clean start for the new um, new person. Um, it, it doesn't always happen that way, but um, yeah, it's a it's much more a matter of what lands on your desk than what you can make happen, I think. Um, but some of those things that land on your desk are pretty darned interesting. Um, <laughs> that I was looking at my index and that special special issue, I don't, I don't know if we call it a special issue, issue but a, a, a section on uh, Bruno Latour, Linda Walsh had that, proposed that, and uh, she had an interview with him. And then we invited, um, I guess, five more people to, to respond. So it was a, you know, kind of new materialist sort of um, blowout there. And uh, that's not something I would have invited because that's not a an angle that I'm, or a theory that I'm very familiar with um, or drawn to, but it seemed to be something that the profession could use and um, was, you know, wonderful quality and very interesting people. So, um, so thanks land on your desk, right. Uh, I, I proposed at the beginning, I wanted more uh, comparative work, uh, works from other countries. Um, and so, when they did come across, uh, did come around, and they were, they were interesting. Then I published those, and that might be something that's a, just slightly different from previous uh, issues. Uh, Scott Stroud, for example, my I think it was the very first issue I did. Um, he's the he's in communications at uh, uh, Penn State, right? Um, and he works on Indian uh, embed car, uh, Indian rhetoric. Uh, I had never even heard of this guy, but he's a, an Indian who studied uh, with John Dewey and adopted pragmatism. And so he, so Scott submitted a piece on um, pragmatism in, in India and this person, um, a wonderful piece by Sharon Yam about Hong Kong um, and women in Hong Kong. Um, Another really interesting piece, but this was just fascinating, uh, by Frank and Park about the translation of um, a Korean uh, speech. So, um, yeah, so I don't know if anybody in the field noticed that or if it made any difference or not, but that was something that, that I wanted to do. Um, and then I also introduced the, those uh, count, counterpoint pieces that I don't know if you've noticed, but RSQ, unlike some other journals, didn't have a comment and response uh, section. So, so I did that. It was it's tricky. It's all about the timing. So you've got this piece, and then you want to invite this other piece, and then it has to be ready at a certain time. And I I didn't 
even because I was inviting them, I didn't even think about a review process or a revision process necessarily. And I just thought they would come in perfect. And, you know, most of them did, but one of them didn't. And then it was really quite awkward because <laughs> we really needed, you know, the issue was going to press, but we, we figured it out and it, it ended up being a wonderful piece. Um, so, um, so I, I really don't know that an editor can really make a mark particularly um, I mean, I don't know. You're you're the you're readers of the journal. Um, do do you think I, this is kind of a pointed question? But did it seem any different while I was editing it, or did it seem kind of like the same interesting stuff that we you know we've gotten in the past? Um, well, what you're describing makes sense in in that let's say with the chunk on Latour and new materialism or. Sharon Yam's piece, uh, for example, the, and the comparative interest, those are some combination of, let's say, your personal interests or somewhat less so as you describe with the new materialism, but the way that interests in the field have emerged over the last few years. What you're describing are things that the field is interested in, right? And you become a, a curator who can foreground and make opportunities for these things that intersect with your interests. I mean, you can't think that they're uh, pointless or a waste of space, um, but they also don't have to be your primary. Uh, they have to sort of make, make that threshold. And there are others that you sound like you can really foreground or maybe just accept into the journal that might have needed to wind up somewhere else with a different editor. Yeah, that 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 definitely happened um, a lot, and uh, you know, there's the reviewers are also a really strong feature. So, if there was something that I was interested in and, and selected, and the and the reviewers just didn't buy it, uh, you know, I couldn't just ignore, you know, the reviews. So that that happened a couple of times. So um, yeah, so. So I don't, I don't know, Ryan, does that help you at all as, as a potential publisher in RSQ or some other journal? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that I think to, to Daniel's point, it's, it sounds like as an editor you made, you were um, both a, a shaper and a steward, right? So like, like Daniel mentioned, even though you're not particularly um, interested in new materialism being that the, the, the field is, you know, has been moving, especially during that time in that direction to make space for it in a way that still coincides with your interests and yeah. your changes to the journal. I think that's really an even balance, right? Between the two things. Good, yeah, I'm glad. I mean, I, as I look at some of these topics, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that strong on some of these things, but, um, but the work was, the work was good. And um, so, yeah. I, I really, really learned, learned a lot um, in the process. I wanted to maybe just as, as a last question point out, we were talking about rereading the sophist and having to, and then I mentioned um, my own project and your other um, newer projects with the necessity of leaving things out, right? Leaving, leaving certain questions um, 
open and room for new scholarship. And this is probably mostly selfish question because I was, as I was going through your uh, rereading the sophist, you have this excellent line where you say uh, the sophist translated the natural scientists observations um, about uh, the temporality of human existence into a body of commentary on the use of discourse in the function of social order, um, i.e. they concentrated on the power of language and shaping human group behavior explicitly within the time and uh, within the limits of time and space. And your conclusion, right, is sophistic rhetoric then as an instrument of social action in the polis was bound to flux. So I, I felt this was so fascinating and this is a, a place to me where you kind of moved along. Um, and I was wondering if you recall, obviously it was published 1991. So <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, I remember that exactly. <laughs> so I was thinking, well, which, which natural scientists and, and um, you know, did, did the, uh, what, that seemed like a place to me where as a, as a writer, you must have said, well, this is, here's the main point, but I don't have time to go into this and I have to put this to the side. You know, and that, but, 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 you know, to me, this is a place where um, it was just, it was a fascinating, yeah, bit of material that gets set aside. Because, uh, you, you know, I don't know if it was Democritus or who, you know, who, who, uh, who's, you know, who, who the sophists were talking to, right, or, or reading or, or listening to. Um, you, you know, where were, where, where were they getting this natural scientific? I know. Mi Kyung Lee does some stuff between Democritus and Protagoras and looks at some of the, you know, there's a weak historical connection there between them. Um, but yeah, just, just a, a, probably a too narrow question, but wanted to ask you, and thanks Daniel for joining us. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think? Any, any thoughts on that? You know, I really, I really don't remember what I was thinking about there, but um, I, I do think, I mean, Democritus and Protagoras, that makes, that makes sense. And um, didn't Gorgias study with um, with whom? With Ep Epicurus? Um, I'm not sure if he studied with Epicurus. I thought uh, Epicurus was a little bit later. Who who mainly? With whom did Gorgias study? He studied with what? You know, uh, one of the pre-Socratics. Um, so I guess I would have to look at that passage in context to see if I can recapture what I'm thinking about. But thanks for reading that. It sounded pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it was a very great line. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, Gorgias, um, I think, was it, it might have been Parmenides or somebody like, I can't remember. Yeah. That wouldn't work. Um, no, that doesn't. Yeah, because he's all the un yeah unity and all that stuff. No, that must have been somebody else. Well, that's a good that's a good place to. Maybe I use the word flux. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Heraclitus. Yeah, I don't know, but that's a good that's a good. Uh, so I'll, I'll look it up, and if I can think of anything, I'll send you a message. Sure, great, appreciate that. Yeah, and it, I thought it I thought it fit in because it's it's a, it's a huge point. Um, yeah. But it wasn't really central, right, to your project. So, um, do you have a page reference? Sure, it's uh, page eleven. Page eleven. Okay, I'll do that. Well, thank you, Ryan. This has really been interesting. 
Yeah, thank you, Susan. And I'll, uh, we really appreciate you having here and, and kind of adjusting the framework. And I'll, um, I'll give our formal outro for everyone. Um, if you join us online, this has been our seventh Live Theory podcast event. And thanks again to Susan for sharing her experience as a writer and an editor. We will be back in fall with uh, new speakers to be announced. And so it's, yeah, it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you.